and thank you for joining me today. Today, I have the honor and privilege of speaking with Sanford Drob, PhD. He is a clinical psychologist who was formerly part of the core faculty of Fielding Graduate University, where he served as director of the forensic psychology concentration and taught humanistic psychology, history of psychology, and psychological testing. He is currently on the faculty at the C.G. Young Institute and Foundation of New York City. Dr. Drab holds doctorates in philosophy from Boston University and clinical psychology from Long Island University. He maintains a practice in clinical and forensic psychology in New York City. For many years, he served as the senior forensic psychologist and director of psychological assessment at Bellevue Hospital in Manhattan. Dr. Drab is also recognized for his writings on the psychology of C.G. Jung and his books and articles which interpret Jewish mysticism from a contemporary philosophical, psychological, and comparative point of view. In the latter writings, he challenges the dogma of theological orthodoxy and understands mystical symbols as providing the basis for an open economy of thought and experience and a charge to mend both one's soul and the environment. Dr. Drab is also a narrative artist whose paintings resignify biblical and historical themes from a contemporary philosophical and psychological point of view. Dr. Drab, thank you so much for joining me today. Sure, you're, you're welcome. Nice to be with you. Yeah, and, and so, you know, with that little bit of introduction, um, it says a little bit about you, but can you kind of tell us in your own words maybe some of your background, what got you interested in psychology and um, maybe forensics in the first place? Okay, well, it's a long life. It's hard to summarize very quickly. Yeah. But um, I originally was a religion and philosophy major at uh, Stony Brook University. And at that time, I uh, came into contact with uh, a theologian by the name of Thomas J.J. Altizer, who was a Death of God theologian, and mm. actually who appeared on the cover of Tide magazine in connection with an article that they had written called Is God Dead? I think it was that article that got him dismissed from Emory University uh, in the mid-60s, and he was uh, hired at Stony Brook to head up the Religious Studies Department. And uh, when I entered Altizer's class, I thought I might be an, a, a physics major. I was very interested in astronomy, but I, I became fascinated with uh, the readings that he uh, assigned, and he introduced me to uh, a number of authors, including Hegel and Jung, which I have been uh, interested in ever since. But he also uh, introduced me, interestingly, to an 89-year-old Mordechai Kaplan at that time. Mordechai Kaplan is a, a rabbi who is the founder of the Jewish Reconstructionist movement. And Altizer had a relationship with him because Kaplan was also uh, a person who, in a sense, denied the uh, importance of a supernatural God and who saw religion, more, or Judaism in particular, more of as a cultural and, uh, and, and um, a kind of as a civilization. He wrote an important book called Judaism as a Civilization. Oh. And I had heard of Kaplan in part because 
my grandfather had been the president, uh, he had been a rabbi, and he'd been the president of the Rabbinical Assembly of America in the 1920s, and Kaplan had uh, succeeded my grandfather, whose name was Rabbi Drob. And the two of them had a, a what in uh, Hebrew, I guess you would call a machlokis, a, a controversy over the direction that Judaism should take in America. My grandfather was very traditional and Kaplan was very uh, radical at that time. And so uh, I became very interested in what Kaplan had to say. My grandfather had been gone for many years and it was sort of an interesting experience to get back in touch with someone who knew him so well. And so that process kind of inaugurated me into a number of different uh, fields of study. Uh, it kind of got me back into recapturing my Jewish roots, got me interested in the philosophical foundations of religion, and I began reading Jung and then, of course, Freud, and got me interested in psychology. And I pursued uh, all of that, uh, I guess, with a great passion, and uh, ended up uh, I spent a year in law school, realized that wasn't for me, and I ended up getting a fellowship to study philosophy uh, at Boston University. Uh, and there I um, worked with a, a man by the name of J.N. Findlay. I, I had had an interest in, in uh, Wittgenstein as an undergraduate. Wittgenstein is a, a philosopher who uh, was interested in unraveling the history of philosophy and showing that it involved the bewitchment of our intelligence by uh, language. Mm -hmm. And Wittgenstein also was the view that much of our talk about mental processes uh, is very misguided. And I had studied with uh, several of Wittgenstein's pupils at Cornell. They seemed to have congregated there. In fact, Wittgenstein had come to Cornell in the 50s. Okay. And when I got to Boston University, I found another one of Wittgenstein's students, a man by the name of Findlay, J.N. Findlay. And Findlay was of the view that Wittgenstein was a brilliant philosopher because if you put the negation sign in front of all of his positive statements and answered all of his rhetorical statements in precisely the opposite way he wanted you to answer them, you would end up with the correct philosophy. <laughs> and uh, uh, Findlay... Uh, as opposed to Wittgenstein, who wanted to kind of dismantle philosophy and return us to ordinary language, uh, Findlay was of the view that we needed to have a, uh, a grand philosophical vision, uh, almost a theosophical vision. He viewed himself as a Neoplatonist. And uh, that kind of intrigued me and uh, jived a little bit with what I had, uh, my inclinations in terms of theology were at that point. And I ended up doing my dissertation under Findlay, doing a critique of Wittgenstein. And ultimately, um, I decided that I wanted to study psychology, probably more as a practical matter for myself, because my only job opportunities appeared to be in South Dakota at the time. I didn't want to leave the East Coast. And so I thought, well, let me study psychology. I can become a psychologist. Uh, which I did become, but I, I remained really wedded to my interest in philosophy. Hmm. And when I, sometime during my years at Long Island University when I was studying psychology, 
I had a, a, a kind of a desire to go back and see Kaplan, who is still alive. He was 101 years old at the time. Wow. He was in the Hebrew home of the aged. I came back, he thought, he, for a moment he thought I was my grandfather and he wanted to continue the debate. He, he wasn't <laughs> completely there. Uh, but I met him again, but I also met a number of other old men who were, who were younger than him. They were in their 80s and early 90s who knew my grandfather. And I became very enamored of, really for the first time in my life, the Jewish tradition and Jewish observance and I began to uh, study what we call Hasidus, Hasidut, Hasidism at a synagogue in Brooklyn uh, with members of the um, Lubavitch Hasidic sect. You may be familiar with them. Hmm. They are, uh, they, their Rebbe, Menachem, uh, Mendel Schneerson passed away in the early 90s, and they have not appointed a new Rebbe. He had no children, uh, and there are a, a large segment of that community is waiting for him to return as the Messiah. So it's an interesting, uh, actually, from a religious and psychological point of view, that community is very interesting because it's yeah. a living messianic community. Mm. So I, I began studying with them, and as I was studying... Uh, Hasidic texts, in particular uh, a book called Tanya, which is the f written by the first Lubavitcher Rebbe, a man by the name of Shnur Zalman of Liadi, I began to realize how closely uh, related the thoughts in Hasidism were to uh, Jungian thought and Hegelian thought and mm -hmm. Neoplatonic thought, and that put me on a uh, road to trying to create a rapprochement between contemporary philosophy and psychology and um, Kabbalistic Hasidic thought. At that time, I, I didn't know or I hadn't realized that Jung himself had said in an interview late in his life that the Hasidic Rebbe, the Maggid of Miseritz, had anticipated his entire psychology in the 18th century. So the same thought that uh, occurred to me had actually occurred uh, to Jung himself. And then I guess I was, I was, I think I was in my early 30s at that time. This was many years ago. And it, I guess I was off to the races because from that point on, I became interested in this uh, connection. At the same time, I was developing a practice in forensic psychology where, in which I examined uh, criminal defendants in insanity cases and in incompetency, and I developed a little bit of a specialty of looking at people who had been uh, to prison for many years and then were exonerated and, and, and examining them for, uh, they, they had legal actions, civil rights actions, spent 25 years in jail, and it turns out that the uh, prosecution fabricated evidence for you to get in there and you were completely innocent. Wow. And so I, I became interested in parallel in that, and the two in a way connected to me because the, um, the idea, uh, one of the ideas in Jung and one of the ideas in uh, Kabbalah is that we all have a, a, a shadow side. The Kabbalists mm -hmm. call it the Sitra Achra, 
the other side or the clipot, the, the sort of nutshell complexes that we're all plagued with and which can come out at any moment in a very destructive way. And so I began to feel that by God's grace, I wasn't these people who I was examining, but rather the examinee. And I developed, a, a, I guess, a, I don't want to say I developed a love for them, but a, 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 a compassion for their humanity. And so I began to look at uh, people who are, you know, scorned by society, I guess, in a way that might be more... Um, understanding of how they got to where they were mm -hmm. and you know I guess I've developed a reputation in New York as being someone who uh, takes a sympathetic view towards the histories of the people I examine mm -hmm. and uh, sees uh, the uh, potential spark of goodness that still exists within mm -hmm. them the Kabbalists say we not only have a shadow side but we also have uh, holy sparks contained within us and that it is our task in life to raise extract those sparks from their from the complexes in ourselves in the world and to help restore the world it's called they call that tikkun haolam mm. so um I, I, all right that that's my my, yeah. my standing on one foot i guess <laughs> who i see myself uh as particularly in the context of what you're interviewing uh, me about today. Yes, sir, thank you. When I first, um, so I was gonna give a presentation for a class on the Kabbalah, and I came across your writings on, on online. You have like a, a website with a bunch of different writings on the Kabbalah. Right. And then, so that's how I found you. And then I found that you are also a forensic psychologist and that you also paint and up until so, sort of my understanding of forensic psychologists, my kind of prototype for them is that they like data, they like like the hard facts. And um, so then it was interesting to see you in forensics, but also exploring this mystical Kabbalah and painting. And I thought that those were two kind of opposite ends that you put together really well, but I don't know. Well, they are, they are in a way. I mean, most of the people I've encountered over the years in forensic psychology are sort of view themselves kind of as detectives and as kind of hard-boiled scientists. Yeah. Um, and there's that side. I understand that. And I, I, I'm in, in many ways sympathetic with being a detective and being a scientist. But I also uh, view my role as a forensic psychologist in a very humanistic way and perhaps even in a spiritual way. Mm. So... Um, you know, look, uh, one of the issues in forensic psychology is you don't want to let your own feelings get in the way of your evaluation, and I'm very cognizant of that. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, uh, I have found that unless you treat the person who's sitting with you in the room in an empathic uh, manner and treat them as a human being, you're not going to find the full dimension of who they are. And so if you go into the room and you uh, take a kind of prosecutorial attitude towards them in which you ask them a series of questions and try to ferret out whether they're malingering or lying to you or try to, to ascertain, you know, the quote-unquote truth of their story, uh, you'll get a defensive person on, on the other side of the, 
of, of the room. And I found that uh, whatever side I'm working for, I, I want to treat the person, uh, you know, in a way that I'd expect to be treated if somebody was uh, dealing with uh, a matter that was essential to, to the course of my life. So yeah. that's, uh, really that's, that's, that's the position I've taken. I don't, I, I don't see the same... I mean, I, I realize that you're not doing therapy with these people, and I make mm. it clear that I'm doing an evaluation, but I think that you need to use your thera therapeutic or clinical skills or, your, or just your empathy as a human being in order to really try to understand who the person it, person is. Yeah. Um, and then when you write your report, you're obligated to be as objective as you can be, but uh, oftentimes you get information and get a sense of a person that's very different than you would have if you just went through a list of questions. Yeah. Yeah. Um, can I ask, so, uh, so about the Kabbalah and Jung, um, maybe can you give us a... You gave us some kind of some uh, highlights of the Kabbalah, like you talked about Tikkun HaAlam, and you mentioned different parts. But can you kind of give a quick <laughs> run through of some primary like concepts or teachings of the Kabbalah and um, how they relate to Jung? Well, I, I you know, it, it's a complex question. Yes, and you know, I've just. Uh, just sent in the final edits on the second edition of my book called Kabbalistic Visions, which is on, uh, my book on Jung and the Kabbalah. Okay. But uh, three things come to mind uh, okay. right away. The first I've mentioned already, the, the notion that y human beings have a shadow side, that mm. we are, um, and not only that we have a shadow side, but that shadow side is necessary in order for us to realize ourselves and realize our, the world fully. If we deny the shadow, it comes back to haunt us, kind of as like a return of the repressed. And uh, we end up projecting it onto other people, or it ends up erupting in some kind of uh, awful way that we hadn't expected. So that's, that's one uh, aspect of it. And the Kabbalists are very clear that, uh, in fact, there's a statement in the Zohar, which is the locus classicus of the Kabbalah, the, the most important Kabbalistic work, that there is no good that does not pass through uh, something like the domain of evil, that we need to recognize that we are two-sided. So that's one aspect. Another is, uh, I guess, the, the notion that we all have uh, a counter-gendered side to us. The Kabbalists uh, held that uh, there's, there are feminine and masculine aspects uh, uh, in all things, and particularly in all people, and this was one of Jung's uh, ideas, the idea that men have a feminine soul and women have a masculine soul. What this means in, in, in a world now in which masculine and feminine have been deconstructed both philosophically and in society is an interesting question. It's one that I've been thinking about a great deal. But certainly uh, Jung lived in a time uh, before that had, had occurred, or yeah. where it was just beginning, and he believed that there were different aspects of uh, the uh, psyche that were masculine and feminine, but that both were present in all human beings, and the Kabbalists certainly held that. And then finally, the idea of uh, 
chaos and uh, falling apart as a significant precursor to progress, both on an individual and world level. So Jung uh, writes a great deal about how in, in treatment, a person often enters into a chaotic moment. They have a spiritual crisis uh, in which things seem to be falling apart and that that can, that can potentially, not in every case, in some cases people do fall apart. And the, and the job of the therapist is to know when to shore that up for an individual and when to allow it to occur so that a, a deep healing and a, a transformation can occur. Mm-hmm. And the Kabbalists uh, held the view that when God created the world, he created the world through a series of these spherot, which are our value archetypes, but that these value archetypes were either displaced and brought into the wrong realm or in cases of a case of seven of them shattered completely mm-hmm. and the uh, light that was contained within them the divine light that energized them fell into a metaphysical void and got trapped in w- w- what they call the sitrach or the other side and got uh, encapsulated in these nutshells and that it is our task to uh, liberate them to restore ourselves in the world, but that this notion of Shvirat HaKalim, the breaking of the vessels, and their restoration or liberation and, or tikkun uh, occurs uh, both on a cosmic level and on an individual level. In fact, all things are always in a state of rupture and emendation, according to the Kabbalists. And this is an idea that I think is very sympathetic to Jung's, Jung's views. And he, he derived a lot of this uh, from his own experience. You know, uh, prior to the Red Book, he had been uh, Freud's right-hand person, and that relationship, for various reasons, collapsed, and he went into a dark night of the soul, had what, if you read the Red Book, appears to be a, a dissociative or psychotic period in his life, and he had to reconstruct himself. Uh, and he saw, took that as the model in some ways for his understanding of other people's individuation. And then when he encountered alchemy, uh, and there's an interesting relationship between alchemy and the Kabbalah, when he encountered alchemy, he came upon the idea of salve et coagulum, sort of like to to dissolve and then put together again. And uh, he came to the notion that very often uh, a certain way of life which may be effective for a person for, for a certain portion of their life falls apart and there has to be a new uh, integration that occurs and so he, he himself encountered this notion of tikkun and the raising of the sparks he writes about it in uh, some of his letters and references it in answer to Job and this is another parallel with Kabbalistic thought and then finally, what, what brings all of these ideas together is the idea of uh, what Jung called coincidentia opposotorum, the kind of the coincidence and interdependence of opposites. So you have the interdependence of male and female, the interdependence of, of the shadow and the persona of good and evil, and, uh, you know, the, the uh, interdependence of chaos and order. And so uh, Jung uh, believed that the self uh, is a coincidentia opposotorum. And that particular idea 
uh, is one that I pursued both within Kabbalah and Jungian thought, but also uh, in the history of philosophy and uh, in my book Archetype of the Absolute, which is, is subtitled The Unity of Opposites in Mysticism, Philosophy, and Psychology, oh. I tried to show how this idea is... Uh, it's not mainstreamed in the history of uh, Western thought in particular, but that it serves as an undercurrent to much of, of, of Western philosophy and spirituality, and is certainly mm. present in, uh, in, in Eastern thought. And mm. I, I utilize that uh, idea both as a vehicle to understand psychological uh, processes and and. and the efforts that we have to to center ourselves and make ourselves whole, but mm-hmm. also as a vehicle to resolving certain fundamental philosophical uh, problems, um, the relationship between language and the world, between uh, matter and ideas, things like think freedom and necessity. I see them as complementary ideas. Free free will and determinism are complementary mm-hmm. ideas rather than. Uh, oppositions. They're, they're in some ways interdependent ideas. And that, that's something that I think is very much present, uh, implicit in the Kabbalah, and is very much present in, in, in Jung. In fact, there are Kabbalists, Azriel of Girona, for example, who says that God is a union of, of contradictions, of all contradictions. <laughs> very interesting. I'll have to I'll have to read that book. I, I recently read your Kabbalistic Visions one. Um, so it's exciting to hear that you have a second edition coming out. Um, right. You know, the publisher, mm-hmm. unfortunately, Spring Journal Books went out of business a couple of year, few years ago. And Rutledge, mm-hmm. which publishes a lot of books on Jung, mm-hmm. uh, picked up some, some of their titles. And they, I was fortunate enough. Uh, I have a, another book on Jung's Red Book, which is a really a, a whole a trip of the mind in and of itself, that, <laughs> that, that work. I don't know if you've seen it, but it has Jung's paintings in it. It's a really fascinating work, uh, which really details uh, his spiritual crisis, his psychological crisis, and also uh, the formulation of his of, uh, early formulation of his ideas. Hmm. I've, I know the Red Book is recently uh, published. You know, the, the last fifteen years or so. Um, I haven't read it yet, but I've heard people speculate that. Either he had a psychotic break during that time, or he was on psychedelics during that time, or just all kinds of different people yeah, trying to figure well, it out. It's, I, it's a good question. I mean, I, I can't rule out the possibility that he, he used psychedelics, although there's no evidence, as far as I know, that he did. Huh. Uh, I think that he he had... S- he had a kind of dissociative aspect to his personality. I think he was hyper-imaginative, uh, and, and I think he went with it. And he allowed his imagination to uh, go where it would go. Uh, and in some places, it, uh, you know, I, 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 take, I took an interest in, in, in these patients who are classified as dissociative identity disorder or who have possession states or... Uh, oh, yeah. other dissociative phenomena and I came to the conclusion that these people yeah, after working at Bellevue for many years that they had what I call a metastatic sar- carcinoma of the imagination 
their imagination just sort of like multiplies and metastasizes all over the place. Uh, they're not genuinely psychotic in this. They're not schizophrenic. They come back to reality uh, after a while, but their imagination runs really, really wild. And I think Jung is a, is a figure like that. And I think that during that period, he was deeply depressed. He let his imagination run wild. I also think it's possible that he may have played up some of the craziness for effect. Um, you know, Jung is a complex figure. You know, he, he's, he, 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 he's brilliant at times, and at times he's, you know, it's kind of like hard to stomach some of the things he says. Uh, you know, he also has this horrible uh, history of, of what appear to be anti-Semitic uh, ideas and thoughts and behaviors prior to World War II. Then he becomes uh, very enamored of the Kabbalah and says the Hasidim anticipated his whole psychology. So he's a, he's a, he's a really complex figure, and it's hard, hard to f- figure him out. But I don't okay. see the Red Book as simply a, 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 a pathological... Uh, uh, manifestation. I, I, there's a lot of very cogent writing in it. He he has these various adventures that are that sound like dreams, but then he comments upon them in a very cogent way, and then he he draws these beautiful illustrations there um, in a kind of gouache, you know, a, a, a sort of a heavy toned watercolor, and they're really magnificent paintings. And the the whole work is very well organized and very very beautiful. It, it's incomplete. It kind of ends in mid sentence, but it's certainly worth uh, delving into it. I think I think yeah. it's uh, I think it's a it's it's worthwhile. It has elements of Nietzsche's Zarathustra or maybe even um, you know. Uh, you know Dante's Inferno. It's got oh, yeah. it. It has it has that kind of epic sort of adventure in which a figure is led into spiritual realms and hmm. is taught various things and and comes out of them learning things. It's where it's it's worth uh, a trip, I think. Yeah, I'm excited to to read it one day. Um, he, you know, young. I know young talked a little bit about. Uh, he believed that God as a whole was not only good, but God was also evil. Um, can you talk about the Kabbalistic parallel to that a little bit? Well, yeah, I mean, there is a, a, a phrase in, somewhere in the Kabbalah that God has an evil side, that in order for God to be infinite, he's going to include everything, right? Um, but ultimately, I do think that the ultimate Kabbalistic view is that there is a um, kind of a uh, disproportion between good and evil. In other words, that ultimately uh, the world uh, moves or should move towards redemption. Mm. You know, um, Rabbi Aiden Steinsaltz, who died several years ago, was a kind of contemporary Kabbalist, and I, I had the good fortune of being able to interview him a couple of times back in the oh. 80s. And he used this as an analogy. He said that the world that we live in is the worst of all possible worlds in which there is yet hope. And that's the best of all possible worlds. And I asked him, well, what do you mean by that? He said that God created the world so that 
it will be it maximizes the potential for goodness it maximizes the potential for love for beauty for wisdom for courage for all of the all of the things that we as human beings value and in order for that to have occurred uh, the world could not be an Eden world because in an Eden world where, for example, human beings were immortal and, and couldn't die and there was no disease, there wouldn't be the impetus for compassion or the impetus for great love or, for, or even for scientific pursuit, uh, etc. And so according to Steinsaltz, the evil side of God is that side which makes the world a, uh, I guess what you would call a, uh, a very high-risk portfolio for the creation of value. <laughs> Something like that, you know. You, you, want, you want to play it safe, you can, you can invest in, you know, in interest-bearing CDs. You want to make the most money, you t go into very risky uh, stocks, right? So God created a world in which the world was very risky, and and that risk created maximized the po the possibility for value. The spherot are the elements of the world, and what they are are value archetypes: they're love, wisdom, beauty, compassion, etc. According to the Kabbalists, the world isn't made of matter of matter and energy; it's made up of these values and the broken shards of these values that resulted from the break from the breaking of the vessels. And in the process of redeeming those broken shards, we actually create those vessels in a way that's far better than God could have done so him, him or herself by creating an Eden world. And according to the Kabbalists, the um, story of Adam and Eve in which Adam and Eve are ex expelled from the garden is a symbol of this, you know, that, that we, the world couldn't really be uh, what God wanted it to be in in uh, in paradise. It had to be a world in which we uh, suffer, in which we're mortal, in which we uh, struggle and work. And uh, that, I would say, within uh, Kabbalistic thought, you could call the evil side of God. But it is the it is the bad side or the evil side that is ultimately for good. Now, Steinsalt said that. Um, there's no guarantee that the world will succeed in establishing the divine kingdom, I guess would be the metaphor, in establishing uh, goodness. Uh, and that's part of the equation. He said, he said, it's like if you wanted to test a race car, you'd put it on the most difficult track where it might fail. And the, the possibility of failure is the very... Um, possibility that enables success. Another coincidence of the opposites. Uh huh. That makes sense. Good. Thank you. I mean, Thank it's you. you know, it's it's an interesting philosophical idea. When people are suffering and they have cancer and they've got you know, and their children are are, are killed, you know, by uh, by um, you know, screw, merciless police officers. It, mm. You you can't tell them this you know uh -huh. it, would be, it would be shameful so uh -huh. you know it's it's it, hegel ha held a view like this and 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 at one point one of uh his sisters i believe lost her husband and she called him for his wisdom and he said listen in times like these i have no wisdom at all you know
So it's a, it's 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 a way of thinking, and it, it I think it has a, bears a certain truth, but it also has a uh, it's a little glib at times. You know, the Hasidim said you should always carry two things uh, in your pocket. One one uh, piece of paper in in your pocket in which you say um, the world was created for me, and another piece in which you say. I am but dust uh, uh, and, and, and shame of the earth, you know. And I think that we need to be, as philosophers or thinkers, we need to carry two pieces. One where we feel assured of what we're saying and another in which we realize that we're pretty, pretty, pretty foolish ultimately in the face of uh, life's conundrums. Yeah, okay, yeah. Did you, um, did you go to a Jungian Institute like to get certified to be a Jungian analyst? No. No, I, 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 I never did that. I, uh, I was busy getting two doctorates, <laughs> dropping out of law school and then getting two doctorates, and I thought I had enough, enough education. Um, and I'm not an analyst, and I don't practice. Years ago, I practiced psychotherapy. I practiced psychotherapy until I was about 50. Oh. And, then, and then I realized that between the teaching and the writing and the forensic psychology, I, I couldn't continue with it. And also, I don't mm-hmm. know if I... If I have the personality to be an analyst, you know, uh, I think that you, you, you have to have a kind of uh, uh, patience that uh, I, I'm a much more restless soul, you know. I'm usually doing four or five things at once. As I get older, it's not as easy. But so I, I, never, I never wanted to be an analyst and never became one. And my teaching at the Jung Institute is I'm not teaching people how to do analysis, although I guess I have some ideas about it, having been, having practiced therapy and having been a, a, a patient. But I, I'm mainly teaching, the, you know, the theor- theoretical classes. Uh, yeah. there. Okay. Um, when did you get into painting? Oh, that's an interesting story in and itself. You know, back when I was in uh, high school and my first year in college, I, I was drawing a lot. But I was very interested in drawing like the old masters. I wasn't particularly interested in modern art at that time. And my efforts were kind of discouraged by the art departments. And so uh, I wasn't expressive enough. I was trying to be too meticulous. And I didn't want to be less than meticulous. So I started doing with with my girlfriend at the time I started doing uh, cartoons stick figure cartoons and stayed stayed around the periphery of art but then uh, after a time I uh, kind of looked back and I said wow they really stifled my interest in this (laughs) and I I decided to see if there was a place where I could train to paint uh, in a more academic or old master style and by the time I did this, we we're talking now not that many years ago, less than 20 years ago, um, there was an art renewal movement uh, in the United States which sought to train people uh, in oil painting, in, in drawing and oil painting in, in a manner that really uh, fell out of favor with the advent of modern art. And so I got involved with a place called the Grand Central Academy, which taught that. And then I hooked up with one of the artists there and began painting in her studio. And just for a couple of years, just did what I was told to do. One of the things I was told to do was to slow down. 
<laughs> and to slow down not only my art, but everything else in my life was a very, very good uh, piece of advice. I don't know if I've followed it uh, fully, but now I do. If I have to do something that I think will take me 15 minutes, I always give myself a half hour now. Uh, and it's been, it's been a real blessing. But w when it came to painting in the way that I wanted to paint, uh, I was told, listen, you're spending the whole day on the nose. Don't even go to the eyes, you know. <laughs> so I learned to slow down and I learned to paint uh, in this kind of style. And once I felt competent at that, I, I began to take up themes that interested me. Hmm. Uh, many of them were religious uh, themes or biblical themes that I wanted to paint either from a Jewish perspective or from a critical perspective. Uh, for example, I, I, I'm interested in the Midrash, which, said, which, you know, the whole Abraham story in which he almost sacrifices his son, but the angel stops him, and that's considered to be a sign of incredible faith on, on um, Abraham's part. I guess his shadow side came out there and, and got, it got stopped at the last minute, but always troubled me deeply. And there's a midrash, a, a story that's, you know, outside of the Bible, but which is still part of the tradition that says that Abraham actually killed Isaac. Oh. So, I, uh, and the angel was too late. So I painted that, you know. Oh, cool. Um, so I, I began painting these themes in ways that uh, were perhaps a little critical uh, at the same time being very traditional. And also I began painting some political uh, topics. You know, what, uh, something that's a little disheartening now in the world of art is that with all of these computer programs now that are yeah. painting and that are taking people's art and recombining it, Right. It's it's particularly frustrating. You know, if you're a representational artist, you've suffered a lot of blows over the years. The first mm -hmm. was the advent of photography. You know, mm -hmm. prior to photography, uh, mm -hmm. the landscape painters, you know, church and people like that, they would go out west, they'd paint these huge 10-foot, 12-foot canvases, bring them out east, and they'd be able to charge people to see them because nobody had ever seen these these mountain views in the Rocky Mountains. There wasn't any photography. Then the photography came, and these mm. people were kind of run out of business for a while. Mm. So then you have the advent of modern art, right, and, and representational art kind of, you know, took a back seat. And then just as it's beginning to uh, come back with this art renewal movement, you know, have these computer programs that are creating representational art. So frustrating. If you want to, if you want to have your painting painted in a renaissance style you just give it a, a photograph and in four seconds you've got the painting it would take it would take me three months to do it <laughs> uh so you know we're constantly having to as an artist we're constantly having to uh, stay ahead of technology um in a way and it's i mean the whole advent of technology uh is a whole other topic uh, i recently uh, submitted an article which uh, to, to a journal of theology and philosophy called Are You Praying to a Video Game God? In which I look at the, the idea of tra the traditional God and consider what that idea of the traditional God might mean in, if we're living in a simulation and where our world is controlled by a computer at a higher level of rea reality. Then we'd just be praying to some computer, you know, in, in the higher yeah. level of reality. And I use that as a springboard for a critique of what I call very simplistic understanding of, of divinity. But uh, 
you know, the, the, the whole artificial intelligence is something that is, um, has kind of inundated uh, a lot of the topics that uh, I'm interested in. <laughs> and uh, how to cope with that, that, that is really uh, both fascinating and I, I, I think uh, very challenging. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Dr. Job, where can people find you? Where can where they can, find me? Where can they find your well, artwork they, or your books? They can find my artwork at sanfordrawbart.com and, and, and they can find my uh, writings on Kabbalah on at New Kabbalah, N-E-W-K-A-B-B-A-L-A-H.com. Um, I have, there are probably other, there are other websites and I have different blogs uh, exploring certain themes. Put my name in there, you'll find it. Sanford Drob, D-R-O-B. Okay. All right. Uh, thank you so much. Um, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a, it's been a real pleasure. I appreciate it. Okay, Daniel, let me know, uh, where I can, I can, uh, t- t- take a look at this. Mm-hmm.